Welcome to the Hammond High podcast. I'm Andre Longley, and I guest this week as an acclaimed actor and a Highgate resident. Juliet Stevenson shot to fame for her role in Truly Madly Deeply, but she has a phenomenal CV, having worked consistently for 40 years. She can currently be seen on the BBC in Sarah Pascoe's comedy Out of Her Mind. This episode of the podcast was recorded before the second national lockdown was announced. Among other things, we discussed the relevance of Shakespeare and Beckett to what we're experiencing during the coronavirus crisis, and what Juliet describes as the government's lack of compassion when it comes to refugees. So, Juliet Stevenson, thank you so much for joining us on the Ham and High podcast today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. How are you keeping at the moment? Obviously, um, a lot of your work involves the stage and obviously the stage is suffering. Are you, uh, are you keeping busy? I mean, yes, I am in the sense that at the beginning of lockdown, um, I built a little sound studio in my kids' old bedroom. Um, and when I say a sound studio, you know, I, <laughs> I got all the equipment, um, the proper equipment, but the studio itself is built out of a lot of old duvets and futons and uh, mattresses. So it wouldn't really bear scrutiny <laughs> if you were to see it. It's like a crazy um, sort of uh, tent, but it, it's, it, the acoustic does work well. And so I've recorded, um, because I didn't, you know, wasn't able to work in any other way, I've recorded 12 audiobooks inside there since lockdown, just so that I had a little bit of earnings coming in. Um, I've got two kids at university and so on. So there's, you know, I'm still need, need, need quite a lot of people um, to, I have quite a lot of people to support, but um, no, I mean, my, I, it's, it's been a really, you know, it's been a bad year because I was in a show called The Doctor at the Almeida, um, which did really, really well. and was going into the West End for a, for a lovely run there with the fantastic company of actors I was working with. And then I was going to go to New York um, and and make an American production of it in New York with Robert Ike, the director. So it was going to oh, be wow. a fantastic year work-wise. Mm. And it was a play that I was very, very proud of and think really important play. No, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm very, very sad. I'm very frustrated not to be able to work. Um, I'm very, very worried about my community, not just actors, but, you know, writers, stage managers, wardrobe um, workers, stage door crew. There are so many people who work inside a theatre, all of whom are, um, you know, out of a job and with no foreseeable certainty that they will be getting back inside theatres anytime soon. So it's a really, really terrible time for our theatres. And although theatres are boldly, you know, doing their best to, to make something happen. I mean, in, in, your local Hampstead Theatre is going to do a two-hander, I think the dumb waiter soon, and that will, you know, to, to limited audiences. But I mean, I, you know, the, the struggle to even cover costs will be very difficult. Um, I did make one piece. We did open a theatre. We opened the Don Mayer Warehouse though, halfway through lockdown. Um, to make a piece which we did with binaural sound technology, which simply means you record it 
in a way in which the sound is completely three-dimensional. So you hear sound, the audience listen to the show on headphones. Um, I wasn't actually present, we pre-recorded it, but they listened on headphones and it really does sound as though, you know, I'm in the room close to them, far away from them on their left, whispering in their right ear, shouting in some courtyard off to, you know, it's an incredible re sort of recreation of, of an actor in physical space. And it was, it's a wonderful piece called Blindness, which is actually about a, a pandemic. Um, ah, it's from a novel, isn't it? It's a novel. It is by a, a Portuguese writer, Jose Saramago. Um, and we started work on it long before we'd ever heard of COVID. We, we, we workshopped it at the National Theatre in, in January, I think, 2019. And, um, and it took various forms. And then the wonderful writer, Simon Stevens, who'd adapted it, said, what about doing it as a one-woman show? Again, well before COVID. And I said, that'd be crazy. It's got a cast of hundreds, you know, because there are a chorus of blind people and there are, um, it's an amazing sort of metaphorical story. Um, but he did write it for one, one voice and we tried it out on various people and it worked extraordinarily well. So when lockdown happened, um, we thought, well, why don't we try to do this as a sound recording? And, 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 and so the, um, the John Mar warehouse picked it up and, they made an extraordinary event happen there. Um, it wasn't a, a reading like an audiobook; it was kind of fully inhabited. Uh, it's a very graphic, you know, um, thrilling sort of story. Lots happens to her. Um, so yeah, so, and now that show is going to New York, Washington, Toronto, and um, Holland and around the UK, I hope. So, um, you know, without me, without any of us, just as a, as a three dimensional wow. recording with light and with, very beautiful seating pattern to keep the audience safe and separated. I mean, the, the books are a remarkable, but I've read it and it's, it's very intense, isn't it? As you say, some, it, 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 it creates that, that feeling of the, of the blindness, which is, is part of the virus, isn't it? In the book that they, people go Absolutely. blind. That's amazing, Andre. I think you're the first person I've ever met who's actually read the book. Um, I'm really <laughs> impressed. <laughs> well, good. I'm, I'm a bit of a sucker for kind of post-apocalyptic or disaster books. So, it, yeah, well, it's certainly that. Although I think what's amazing about it, it does it as you say, it is about a, a virus of blindness. So it's not that people get ill; it's not a virus. It's it's a, they become blind and then they're all shipped off by by the government to you know some huge empty um, institutional building outside the city centre where society completely falls apart. It's a bit like Lord of the Flies, but it's extraordinary sort of hopeful in a way so life as as they and we understand it completely breaks down but at the end of the book as you remember they find their way the one character who's not blind who's my character sort of like a literally a seer a seer leads them back into the city which is of course you know full of weeds and abandoned buildings and nobody knows how to live and they find their way of living together um as a sort of disparate community of different groups, like families moving around the city, but nobody owns anything. Um, nobody fights each other. It, it's, it's an amazing sort of exploration of what would happen if our, our way of life entirely was destroyed and we had to rethink how to, how to live, how to be on the planet. Couldn't be more opposite for the current moment. Well, ex exactly, and and that's really interesting how how you've done it with the um, with the Dolma, um, the the audio version because I think lots of people in the arts and in all kinds of areas are have been trying to find quickly new innovative digital ways of doing things, and uh, that sounds amazing. After check it out, yeah. um, the audio books. What what kind of books have you been recording? Because you've done Jane Austen 
extensively, if that's correct. Isn't I it? haven't. I have done all of Jane Austen, literally at least once. I think a lot of them twice. Um, actually, yesterday I finished a new um, version, audiobook version of Pride and Prejudice, Naxos. Um, hmm. um, I thought, oh, some wonderful books. I've done Dr. Zhivago by Pasternak, which I would never have read. It's massive, but that was amazing. <laughs> journey um i've done um i did i did you know uh call a midwife is based on two books by an amazing writer who worked as a nurse in the east end of london um sort of in, in just post-war in the 1950s mm. and and she and, and so that the series was taken from those books so i read both of those books um read Henry James, some other new novels by um, Rachel Joyce, um, Miss Benson's Beetle, that was wonderful. So it's, it's been it's been great, it's been very good. I mean, they, they don't pay very much, so I can't really earn a proper living from them, but they've been very useful and, and you know, I, I do love doing them. And it must be it must be fun just to be introduced to books you wouldn't otherwise read, like Dr. Zhivago. I'm part of a book club and it's as it's that, it's so that you can get it is. Stuff. It's a book club yeah. of one. It's a book club of me and, and whoever <laughs> on the line producing them. Yeah, no, it's fantastic because I don't have a lot of time to read novels and so to get paid to read Dr. Zhivago or something is is fantastic. Just to go back slightly on the uh, the, the theatres and how they're dealing with it, obviously the, there have been emergency funding grants gone out which will help some theatres no doubt some will struggle um but of course a lot of the people involved in the area what such as yourself essentially a freelance what do you think needs to be done to help support those people more well you're absolutely right i mean you know we didn't get furloughed we didn't get any financial support at all um i was actually five weeks into a contract with with the west end um, producers because we'd taken the doctor to the show to Australia to the wonderful Adelaide International Theatre Festival but you know um, we we just were we were just um, you know we had to our contracts were dropped and we weren't we weren't paid at all so um, it's fantastically difficult I mean I know people who brilliant people who running theatres or you know company managers who are stacking shelves in, in Tesco and consider themselves lucky I mean I really think you know unfortunately we've had a succession of governments who just don't understand. Um, I mean, whether or not they like the theatre or the arts themselves is sort of irrelevant, but they don't seem to understand what the arts bring to a society and certainly even financially. I mean, the amount of revenue that's generated by, by London theatre. I'm talking about London theatre because this is the mm. hammer and eye. I mean, obviously this is true nationally, but you know, in terms of what it brings to restaurants, bars, hotels, car parks, you know, um, all sorts of um, attendant sort of goods and services and, you know, VAT and tax and all those things. So it, it really is a foot shooting exercise to leave them to die. And I think people are glad that they've had some money. I know quite a lot of people running running theatres in London who say, well, we have now got some funding, but obviously relatively small amounts, enough perhaps to survive for, for a few more months or just to be able to pay staff, um, but not enough to be able to mount productions or get going again. So I think, um, I mean, if only the government would understand this huge, huge con contribution that theatres make to, to London's economy, it would be, it would be good and also, you know, when, when lockdown happened, I think that people everywhere spoke of how they survived or coped with isolation and lockdown. They went 
they went to books, they went to Netflix, they watched lots of series, they caught up with series, they they watched a lot of comedy, they, you know, they read, they listened to audiobooks like mad, that that market went crazy. They listened to lots of music, maybe they even started playing the piano again. I mean, they read poetry, they wrote. People turn to these things, they turn to the arts for solace, comfort, for connection, for community. Um, to find their stories written and reflected there. Ironically, at a time when the arts were utterly abandoned, they were never proved to be more valuable by the experience of the public going through this terrible crisis. So, you know, if only we could join those dots, if only the government would join those dots and say, you know, this is, I know we're not doctors, we're not nurses, we're not schools, and there are many more areas of society which absolutely I, I know are more important and need funding but this is a completely different kind of um, service that, that's provided and it's very very needed um, so should be supported. Well, I listened to another interview with you on a different podcast which name I should remember but I've forgotten for a second um, you were talking about acting and how to, I think it's called how to be an actor. And one of the things he said was, we're conduits through which other human experience is channeled. Um, I, I suppose what I'm interested in is what you get out of that, because being the actor, you're not just the cipher for the stuff, you must be learning and experiencing at the same time. Yeah. Um, so, so how do you see what you get out of a character or, or living with a, a production? Well, it's a great question, Andre, because now that I'm not able to do that, for the first time in 42 years of working, um, and I haven't been able to do that, be that conduit since March, I'm really struggling. So by not being able to do that, I realise um, why I need it and what it means in, in my life. And I, I really struggle having to be just myself all the time. <laughs> I get really fed up with being in my own company. I mean, I do, I enjoy solitude and I'm, and I'm happy to be on my own, but I, I you know, what has it been eight months of not being able to inhabit somebody else or tell somebody else's story or eight months of not being able to recycle my experience of the world and, and, and my responses to the world through through that other character, through the character I'm playing, I, I realize, you know, we're, we're, we're recycling machines. We recycle our own responses and experience, and we, we put that to the service of inhabiting another life or telling somebody else's story. But, and the beauty of that is that you're right, we are, we're not complete ciphers. So, you know, you respond to the text, to what the writer has created, and you try to serve that character as well as you can. But then of course you interpret it with your own experience and your own instincts and your own observations about the world and, um, and your own thought and your own mind. And, and that hybrid between what the writer has created and who you are produces, you know, the, ca the character. And, um, I, I've discovered it's not just something I love to do and, and earn a living from, but it's something I sort of viscerally need. And I don't really know why, but I just find it, I'm desperately missing it, to be honest. And, you know, it's lovely to do audiobooks and so on, but it's not the same because I'm not able to escape myself. And I'm not, I'm not able to recycle experience. I'm not able to find expression for things through, through other people's stories. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm finding it really, really hard, to be honest, especially now. But I think many people... That's another, that's another answer, but it's much harder now than it was back in April and May. That 
sounds familiar to me because I find I stagnate if I'm not concentrating on work or if I don't have projects on the go. And I, I was actually off work for a few weeks with COVID and then I just returned last week. And, I, you know, I had kind of heavy, fluey, virusy symptoms. So I was kind of knocked out. But there was a bit of the recovery time where it was great just watching Poirot on catch up. But there was another part of me that was thinking, yeah, but I'm, I'm not doing anything. I'm slowing down. I can feel yeah. just. Yes. Yeah. The fear of stagnating or or just treading water, I think we're. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I really do understand that. I mean, this it's I, I really identify with what you're saying. And I think I, I'm, I'm just trying to learn what this experience is. I'm sure we all are in our different ways. I have been quite low recently, to be honest, and, and um, my husband is very COVID vulnerable because he has underlying health conditions that would make it very dangerous for him to catch it. So we had to leave London. His doctor said, you better get out. So we haven't been able to see our four kids, hardly at all. Our little grandchild, who's two, we have barely been able to see or certainly not sit him on our knee or read books mm. with him or play with him. Um, and obviously I haven't been with my, my working communities. So I sort of feel, you know, I've lost my life rather. So here I am as an individual and I realize that in answer to your question is that I, I don't, I, I really, really need to live in a community, whether it's a community of actors, you know, whether it's a working community or rehearsal room or a film set or, or radio studio, whether it's a community of family, my, you know, we've got quite a big family and their partners and now a little grandchild and, my, my brother's children and so on, or whether it's a, a community of you know political activists, which I you know I'm quite involved in various things, or charities, which I'm also quite involved in, or my communities where I'm just one of a team of people making something happen, and that's where I thrive and that's what I love and that's where I feel really affirmed. And interestingly, as a per, as an individual, I feel affirmed by being one of a group. When I am just an individual and forced to stay inside four walls, you know. With, with Hugh, my husband, who I, I love to bits. I mean, I'm very happy to be with him, but the lack of community, the lack of ensemble or group is, is really, really hard. I just feel diminished by it. And that's why I think I haven't been able to sort of, you know, learn Italian or you know, learn how to make great sourdough bread or whatever everybody's doing. Cause I think I don't, I don't, it won't restore me personally to do things that are just about me. I want desperately to be out there and, and the only time, the way I've coped with lockdown is to do everything I can to connect back to say, you know, charitable communities and try and help online and try and fundraise online for the refugee communities I support or, and when I'm doing that, when I am managing to connect at some level, even if virally um, with a group of people to, to achieve something, then I feel better. But when I'm on my own, I, you know, I, I haven't done any of those solitary activities that I thought, you know, lockdown would enable me to do and I don't really want to. All that beautiful time that's that's not all it looked and all it appears. I mean I'm never never happier than when I'm in a, a, a happy rehearsal room, a rehearsal room where people are working well together and it's it's a good room. I mean just never happier because that sense of I don't know that sense of all of you coming together with one common goal. You may not know quite what you're doing yet, but you're experimenting and exploring together. People are contributing their life experience to it. I mean, the doctor rehearsal room was an amazing room. 
because it was about identity that play so people talking about you know race religion faith sexuality gender all the things that define us um, and then also talking about the qualities beyond all those things that that hold us together i mean you know it doesn't really get better than that have you managed to um or, or tried to use zoom or similar video for presumably to keep in touch with family and things. I mean, it's not the same, but have you kind of built yourself a schedule of we will keep in touch face to face? Actually, we haven't done that. We are, we're a very close family. We've got, Hugh and I have four kids between us. Um, my youngest is 19 and he um, he was at home. Well, he was on a gap year when lockdown began. We had to try and get him back. He was stuck um, in South America. He was really stuck and got wow. absolutely no help from, the British Embassy um, there, so um, it was very hard to get him home. Anyway, but basically we were all in different places for lockdown, which was um, really, really sad. We didn't do that, you know, every Friday night family Zoom thing that I heard about. Mm. Probably because in our family, we'd never have got everybody to be in the same place <laughs> at the same time. But we do, um, we are very close and we have endless WhatsApp threads. So we have one for us, four, one for us, six, one for us, nine, one for my brother's children. And, you know, we have lots of different versions of family threads and we, and and we ring each other a lot. I mean, I, I WhatsApp and, and ring the kids quite a lot. But um, and oh, but one thing we did do, which was so lovely. So I lost my oldest brother very sadly, but I've kept very I'm very close to his two children who were teenagers when he died. But they, um, my niece now has two gorgeous kids of um, four and eight. And one thing we did at the beginning of lockdown was we 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 had a sort of we opened a gardening channel between us. So we were crazily digging up the lawn and planting vegetables here. And, you know, I was cr going crazy experimenting with plants and Hugh, my husband was, he created a vegetable garden from nothing and then got completely obsessed. So I was, you know, I'm trying to stop him, <laughs> a whole lawn getting turned into a veg patch. But, and, and, and my niece and her little boys and her husband in Leeds had never done anything like that. So they, they started doing it in their urban garden and, so we would compare every week or twice a week. We'd, we'd have, we'd send long video films to each other of what we were doing in our garden and the progress of this particular mm -hmm. plant or the, you know, the, look how the carrots are doing or you two can grow sunflowers or, or beetroot or whatever it was. And the kids got really um, interested in it, really excited about it. And they learned lots and we'd give each other tips. And so that, that was one way, that was one really gorgeous thing about lockdown was this sort of everybody got crazy about gardening and we, would watch the um, the growth of each other's gardens uh, on our little phone screens and get really excited. That's great. And I mean, the small mercy is that this happened once the technology was here for, for lots of us to be able to, to do that kind of thing. Yeah. To change the, the subject slightly, you, you talked about charity work and um, political involvement before. Obviously, one of the areas you're, you've been associated with is refugees um, yeah. rights. And as we're doing this interview yesterday, I think it was, there was a, a tragedy off the French coast with a, yeah. a family dying. Desperate, desperate tragedy. What do, what, what do you think needs to be done to change the UK's approach and the French well, approach to this? When, when are they going to recognise? I mean, 
three children and two children and now a 15 month old baby who's missing, presumably drowned. I mean, it's absolutely devastating. And that family, I was reading only this morning, Andre, that family was so desperate to get out of Calais because of the conditions. I mean, they're living in, you know, in, in mud, freezing cold. You know, we've had so much rain recently. Can you imagine a family trying to keep three little children healthy when they're living outdoors in, in, in mud and cold and wet? And apparently the mother was desperate to, didn't think they would manage to get through this winter living in those conditions in Calais. And so they were desperate to get to the UK. We have to create safe legal routes. We have to remember that to seek asylum is an internationally legal thing to do. It is a right. These families, they were Kurdish, you know, they were Iranian Kurds. They were fleeing um, from persecution. It's, it's written into international law. Uh, we, have a, we have a Home Secretary who appears to have no understanding of these things. Um, the lack of compassion, you know, is, is, is incomprehensible. And I know that many, I think and hope that many of your listeners will, will, um, will identify with this because, um, I mean, how long have we been talking about this too? And how many people have to die? How many children have to drown in the channel before somebody does something? You know, we've got fantastic charities like Safe Passage, um, for whom Lord Alf Dubbs has been a great spokesman, but I, you know, he and I and various others have been working with them for years to try and ensure that the legal routes that do exist in European law for children to come here, just to be kept safe until they can go back to their countries. It's not necessarily about coming here for good, but it is about offering shelter and sanctuary um, when, when those children's lives are threatened by war or violence or starvation and all those other things that we perfectly well know exist. Um, so I feel, as you can see, I feel really, really strongly about this. We, are, we as a country have all, you know, we have a history of doing this. We brought 10,000 children, Jewish children, into this country on, on kinder transport. We brought one, a wonderful thing to do. And Alf Dubs, the amazing Alf, is a living example of what an incredible benefit to the country bringing those Jewish refugee children was. What a rich addition to our culture and society those children were and have become. And, you know, in the Spanish Civil War, I think we brought 5,000 children from um, Spain and for the same reason and kept them here safely. And, and they were fostered out, I think, until it was safe for them to return to Spain. We have a very proud and wonderful tradition of this. And it, but neither of those were government initiatives. It's really interesting. They were both initiatives brought about by people. I think in one instance, the Quakers, and in and the other, perhaps both, both times the Quakers, but, but certainly supported by popular um, will and enabled by, 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 by ordinary people and, and I just, you know, we need we need that to be happening again now. And as you say, seeking asylum is a, a legal is a legal thing, and we have a, a duty to 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 enable that so that people who need the help can get it. Um, closer to most, closer to home, as it were. Um, you involved in in charities in the in the North London and Highgate area as well. Yes. Well, when the when the refugee um, crisis. Sort of, you know, really um, exploded in 2016. I got involved in various um, refugee charities like Safe Passage and um, the wonderful Young Roots, which works for very young teenage um, asylum seekers and Amnesty International and and um, and 
help refugees who I met in Calais at the very beginning of their organisation. Anyway, lots of local people in the street and people I know in the area were coming up and saying, Julia, I hear you're doing this. I'd really love to help. I really want to do something, but I don't know how. I don't know what to do. And I don't want to just make a donation online. I want to, you know, there was a real sense of people wanting to do something. So I started a local charity it was called Highgate Has Heart, which was really just some of us, the local women in my street and in the neighbouring streets, um, just to raise money for these charities and 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 to bring together our pool, our you know work skills and whatever. It was an amazing group of women who were you know quite lots of professional experience between them. So we fundraised for particularly for the the smaller charities. Um, you know, if if you raise. £10,000 for a small charity, it can go a very, very long way. So, um, yes, I did do that. And um, also, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a patron of the Alexandra Wiley Tower Foundation, which you at Hammond High have been brilliantly supportive of, you guys. And um, it's very local. So Alexandra Wiley was a really lovely, wonderful young girl who very, very tragically died. Um, in her teens of cancer and her amazing mum, Lindsay Wiley, started this charity in her name, which is entirely about supporting local people struggling with, um, you know, all kinds of adversity, but particularly hunger, poverty, homelessness, um, young people in the borough who, on the area, who need more support um, in schools, you know, feeding people, enabling the young young people to to get onto their feet, really. Because I'm interested that the, your, your history and your work has been intertwined with Shakespeare since the start and you yeah. return a lot. Um, I say return, you do new things within that huge canon. What, what do you get from Shakespeare and what do you still find in Shakespeare? God, you know, isn't it funny? You should ask that because recently, just in the last few weeks and months, I find lines from Shakespeare coming into my head and I find myself, you know, texting them to people <laughs> or, um, or you know, bringing them into the conversation, not to be a sort of horrible nerdy, um, <laughs> I hope. <laughs> but I suppose because, you know, his Shakespeare's capacity within a phrase or a line to encapsulate some huge and universal is just unparalleled. I don't know who somebody was struggling with professional rivalry earlier in the week and I found myself saying, oh, well, listen, just remember, you know, beware my lord of jealousy, it is the green-eyed monster that doth mock the meat it feeds on, you know, which is Iago from Othello. And I thought, where did that come from? I've never even done Othello. What the hell? Why? <laughs> Why? But I, I don't know. It's, it's um, I think at times like these, we are desperate, aren't we, for writers or artists to um, give expression to the scale of our experience. And, and, and sometimes you need to go to somebody who had the kind of universal wisdom that he had. I mean, the reason nobody can pin Shakespeare down to, was he right wing, was he left wing, was he you know, a feminist, was he a misogynist, was he a this, was he a that? The point is he speaks for all humanity. And I suppose there never was a time when we, we when we needed a writer who spoke for all humanity. We, you know, with so much that's dividing us in every so many ways. You know, we are being divided by governments. I think you know Brexit's been so divisive, and and even this pandemic, which has in some ways you know brought us all 
into the same framework, but it's been so unequal, you know, people um, suffering it from far more greatly if, they, if they're living in poverty, have no outdoor space, all those things, it's very, very unequal. So I think that writers like Shakespeare, well, there isn't, there isn't anybody like Shakespeare, but you know, who, who, who speak to common humanity um, suddenly. But yeah, I think I've, I, 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 there are certain characters I played even in, back in my twenties, that just never went away. You know, they bubble around in my bloodstream. Really they do. Um, characters I've played much more recently just die away the minute you stop filming or the minute you, mm. you know, your last performance um, on stage. But those Shakespeare girls, they still, they still, you know, jig around inside me and um, I can remember them. I don't, weirdly, you know, I, I can forget, I can forget um, something I read yesterday but I don't forget whole long chunks of text that I, uh, that I performed, you know, 35 years ago. I guess, you know, at the RSC where I did most of that work, you are doing, we were doing those shows in the repertoire for two years. So you literally do hundreds mm -hmm. of performances. And it's been such a wonderful thing in my life to have that language sort of um, drifting around in my head all these years. Is there one Shakespeare character that is kind of bubbling away as, as you put it? to be still to be done? Oh. Um, well, you know, the thing that brought me to Shakespeare always was, was King, you know, the, the, the show I saw when I was 15, I'd never seen Shakespeare before. Five people came into our school hall and they did a cut down version of King Lear in their jeans and t-shirts. Lots of them obviously doubling up parts. Mm. You know, and that was one of those occasions, those light bulb moments when I went into the school hall thinking, oh God, what's this, how dull. And I walked out, you know, two hours later, completely on fire, like um, a different person, a different 15 year old. And the same thing happened when I first went to Stratford and saw a production of Richard II. I'd never seen, I'd never been Stratford before, never seen a professional production. Um, completely, uh, I don't know what the verb is, just utterly inspired. More than that, I don't know, it, it was a light bulb and I thought, I went away and learned great chunks of the play. Um, I was 16 then and, and, but they were both, you know, that was Richard II and King Lear. Those were the two roles that inspired me and not because I wanted to play men. It wasn't really, mm. it wasn't really gendered in a weird way. It was because just as human beings, the scale of their experience and what they were able to speak about. I mean, Lear raging about the unfairness of the way his family's treating him and his expectations and what he needs and how can he possibly only have, you know, five servants with him when he needs 50 or 100. And I mean, getting really angry with his daughters and, and, um, and then getting, you know, serious and then going out into the world and having, meeting a lot of adversity, both physically and <laughs> dealing with rain and being homeless and not eating and being exhausted and being persecuted. And, and then from that, discovering his own humanity, you know, I mean, that's a story which teenagers can really connect to it. And as a teenage girl, I thought, you know, only Leah speaks the right scale. I, I, you know, I didn't want, I wasn't interested in those daughters of his. I thought, no, you know, I, I, I need, I need Leah speaking for my experience. <laughs> you know, my family don't understand me just like Leah saying that his family doesn't understand him. So um, yeah, the, the beauty of ungendered uh, role identification. I, I, I didn't, it wasn't a political idea for me. It was just instinctive. So I don't know. Yeah. I'd like to play. Sometimes I think I'd like to play King Lear, but it has been done now by Glenda Jackson and the wonderful Catherine um, Hunter. 
Um, I don't know, you know, Andrea. I never know how to answer the question. I think Beatrice in Much Ado About Nothing, I would love to do, but I might, you know, might be a bit too old now. Um, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Mm. I'm never very good at knowing what I should be doing next. I, I'm very sort of passive. I wait to be asked. <laughs> And it sounds like, well, it sounds like Lear is something that you do have your eye on. So hopefully a project will come along that can make that happen. Well, I'm torn because I think it, this takes us to the problem of, you know, roles for women of my age or, or women, you know, after the age of 40, 45, 40, really. Um, Lear is a wonderful role and in some ways I would love to play him. But I also feel, no, I don't want to tell men's stories. I want to tell women's stories. There are very wonderful actors out there telling the men's stories which need to be heard but that I, I want to actually tell women's stories my mission really is that we need to be able to tell women's stories of my age not look to male roles because mm -hmm. you know only there is my age group represented I mean women go on getting more and more interesting they let more and more life experience more and more to offer more wisdom or wit more uh, all sorts of things I think as they get older hopefully and un unfortunately very little of that has a chance of being represented in in um in writing in roles for them so I guess my goal is to have more and more people writing roles for women over the age of 40. Do you think that is changing? It's definitely changing. Oh, it's, it's much, it is, you know, it's, it's better than, than when I first came into the industry, although I wasn't aware of it because I was very young, but um, it is changing because there are more, more women writing, but it's not nearly changing enough. I mean, it's not nearly equal and um, you've only got to turn on the telly and count the number of, male actors to female actors and, and especially, you know, older age groups to, to realise that there's a long way to go. The other um, um, part of your career I was going to ask about because I'm a bit of a fan is you, you did Beckett a couple of years ago. Oh yeah. I've done Beckett twice actually because I did actually three times. So I, I first of all did the Beckett shorts, which I did not I footfalls in a group of six short plays at the RSC that they put together. Um, three women's stories of which I did those two little works of genius, footfalls and not I. And then, and then I did a film with Anthony Minghella. He filmed play, which I did with them. Um, film of it with Alan Rickman and uh, yes. Thomas. But the big one, I guess, was Happy Days with the wonderful Natalie Abrahami, my dear friend and wonderful director, which we did at the Young Vic. And then we actually did it a year later. Again, we, we did another run of it, um, which was you know, one of those yeah, life-changing experiences, really terrifying. I mean, to be stuck on stage and not be able to move and to be alone. I mean, there's the wonderful Willie. There is her husband, played by the brilliant David Beams, who's crawling around stark naked behind me on the set. But basically, it's, you know, fundamentally you. You're, you're kind of buried to the neck up, aren't you, Fred? First half, she's buried up to the waist. And the second half, yeah, she's sunk down to her neck, or it's risen to her neck, whichever way around you interpret it. And I mean, that Beckett's really um, prescribed how it's produced as well. Is, is that across the board with Beckett or um, is there their leeway with directors? Because obviously with Shakespeare, it gets reinterpreted. You get all different versions. People can play with it as much or as little as they like. And yeah. yet Beckett is very precise. The Beckett estate, it, 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 yes, uh, Beckett is very precise. And I, 
you know, I, I, I mean, I've said this before. I think he's, his genius as a writer is, uh, you know, fathomless. I mean, he's utterly, utterly brilliant writer. I think as a director, he was probably, you know, pants. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the stories about his directing are terrible. You know, first of all, you can't put a, he stuck a metronome in front of poor Billy Whitelaw, you know, and um, just said, okay, pick, 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 got to say it in that rhythm. I mean, you can't, you know, sorry, but you know, you know, you can't, it's not a military parade ground. <laughs> first of all, you've got to allow actors and directors to interpret the work. And you also, you know, you can't bully actors into, into a way of performing. And also what's so interesting is that he never wanted it explored or, or, or investigated. He only ever wanted it sort of recited rhythmically and musically and sort of sung. But I mean, which is a disaster because that's how it was done. But when you, when you break the material down as you would any other material, they say, well, who is this woman? What's her motives? What's her, what her, what's her history? What's her, what are her backstories? What's her relationship with this husband like? When you take them as ordinary people and you do all that, they, the, the plays come, you know, come, come, come up flowering. There's mm. so much biographical detail to be explored. So um, I don't think he was the right director for his work. And um, the, the state has historically always been, um, pretty firm about doing the plays the way he wanted them to be done. But I don't know how it happened, but but Natalie Abrahami certainly got permission from the Beckett estate to reconceive the set. So I wasn't just stuck in a pile of sand, but we had this amazing, uh, Vicky Mortimer created this brilliant set, sort of like a mountainside, like a scree. And, and I'd been buried in a landslide up to my waist and then in a landslide and all, and, and, and it was a real, you know, I was I was properly locked into this mountain, but the the surface material was all sort of what's it called, verticulite or what am I thinking of? The stuff people mm. sprinkle on top of flower beds. It was it was it was moving. It, it, it was all all the time, sort of shifting and moving. And and as I went through the first half, you could feel that the this gravelly stuff I was buried in was never still. So the threat of it constantly moving and, and oh, wow. burying her further was, was a living presence during the first half. Um, anyway, no, it was a, it's, it's, it's a phenomenal piece about, you know, uh, it's an amazing, he writes for women possibly better than anybody. I mean, he's- Really? Mm. That's interesting. And in, in terms of um, artists and plays for these type, I mean, I saw it and saw the, end game at the uh was it the old Vic just before at the start of this year with Alan Cummings and um Daniel Radcliffe oh no I didn't I heard about it I didn't see it which, yeah. which, which was great but it's there, there's something prescient about it to lock down to society to people being in behind their their, their windows and their walls anyway I'm going off on a, on a tangent no, um, it really is I mean people trapped you know all his plays are about people stuck and trapped they're all about being trapped and the metaphors he uses, you know, are, are incredibly appropriate for lockdown. That's a really interesting point. Waiting, and they're all waiting. I mean, not just waiting for God, but they're all waiting mm. for something in some form, as we are all waiting now, really, aren't we, for the vaccine? I mean, you could say the whole world is waiting for Godot, and Godot is the vaccine, because now it seems pretty clear that until the vaccine is found, manufactured, on a, you know, universally of, available to all and affordable, you know, life will not, you know, many, many lives will be held in, in trapped in suspension. And um, yeah, it's a very Beckettian 
moment actually now you now you uh, mention it i think um i think a, a lot of writers are going to be struggling to find a way to sum up where we are without i mean there, there's going to be a deluge of very bad books about lockdowns but also i'm sure some great works will come out of it um when people have got their heads around what we're what we're going through yeah um, you, you said before um that you kind of wait for projects to come along. Is there anything on the go now, apart from these audio books or anything coming along to look forward to? Um, well, there's a comedy series uh, I made with Sarah Pascoe just before, um, just before lockdown, which has just started going out. It's called Out of Her Mind, which is a brilliant title because it does all come out of her mind, Sarah's mind. But, you know, out of her mind as in bonkers, which, you know, in the series she is, you know, borderline bonkers. It's an absolutely, I mean, I can say this because it's not mine, it's her work. She wrote it, she conceived it, she made it, she stars in it, she executive produced it with some very wonderful others. Um, but it, it's really, really wonderful. And it's, it's an amazing piece. It's, it's, she just opens up the contents of her mind like a theme park and says, you know, come and explore what's in my head. This is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm experiencing. This is what I, you know. And it's it's an amazing, I mean, for women, particularly, I would say, I mean, you know, it's very funny. Men, men would equally enjoy it, I think. But she is talking about women's experiences, you know, in relation to their bodies, in relation to their body image, body shaming, size, weight, diet obsession, you know, nutrition obsession, feelings of inadequacy, constantly failing to meet some sort of, you know, standard of what's, how it's acceptable to look, to be, to behave. I mean, gynecology, a relationship to childbirth or to infertility or to abortion or to pregnancy, uh, motherhood. I mean, she's got it all she's exploring it all and with so with no sense that anything is taboo but with such love really is the word i think and humor and you know it's so funny and so truthful and so courageous it's not like anything i've ever seen on british telly so i play her mum which was an amazingly wonderful i felt completely thrilled to get this job um and it's a fantastic cast um of people playing her family and friends and community so it goes out on bbc2 at 10 o'clock um it's six episodes and and episode two went out this week but it's all on iplayer so you can catch and binge the whole lot on iplayer so that's happening at the moment um what else actually i've just had my first job offer to do a film come through this week which is nice but um no otherwise i've been really waiting to find out whether you know the doctor will get its West End run back, um, which the producers mm. are hoping to do, but goodness knows when. I was also going to get to New York with it. So um, as I mentioned, so I don't know whether that's happening. Um, that's about it. Well, that's that's quite a lot. And I'm really looking forward to, um, out of her mind, the uh, uh, yeah. Sarah Pascoe is brilliant. So I'll yeah. It. yeah, yeah, no, do catch it if you can, Andre. It's, it's all on iPlayer now. So you can sit down with a cup of tea and watch all of it in one go if you feel like it or... excellent well maybe i'll sack off work for the afternoon and just... <laughs> <laughs> the paper will look after itself it's fine 
Um, well, listen, Julia, thank you so much for spending this time with us. It's been fascinating. And um, yeah, take care. I hope work picks up and uh, continues soon. Thank you so much. It's been really lovely talking with you, Andre. Thanks. Thank you so much to Juliet for joining us. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and we'll be with you again next week.